Let's remain standing as Peter reads the scriptures for us from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much to you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As I noted on the screen, this is part two of the sermon from a couple of weeks ago. We started in on John 14, verse 12, this idea that he who believes in Christ will do greater works than Christ himself did, and hopefully have kind of set that into its proper context where we understand that we are not talking about more mighty or impressive miracles than what Jesus did. That really wouldn't even be possible, but rather just the extent to which Jesus was able to do ministry in about three, three and a half years in a very limited piece of geography in Galilee and Judea. It's also worth noting as we start in again here this morning that this chapter is kind of 
introductory to the next couple of chapters, chapters 15, 16, and even 17, which will deal with many of the same issues. So one of the struggles in preaching from the Gospel of John is that layering effect that I talked about very early on, how John will take a concept, and then he just kind of keeps adding to it as he goes along. And instead of dealing with it in that really nice hierarchical way that we outline things, John just kind of keeps bringing it back and showing it in a little bit different light, a little bit different context. So much of what we will be looking at this morning is going to come up again in the next several weeks as we finish off our study in the Gospel of John. But I said a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's a good place to start this morning, that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is summarized for us in his high priestly prayer for the church, which is found in John chapter 17. Now, in a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at John chapter 17. But for this morning, please note verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, the last words that he said to his disciples before they went to the garden, and he was taken away to be crucified. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So there's something in God glorifying Christ, giving back to him, as we've seen before, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, which not only glorifies the Son, but in glorifying the Son, then that glory passes upwards to the Father himself. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since, so because, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's a whole sermon there. But John goes on to say, this is eternal life. And we need to pay attention to what he says when he makes a statement like that. This is eternal life. Because as we've noted so many times in this series on the Gospel of John, this is the purpose for the whole book. This is why John wrote down the words of Jesus and the signs that Jesus performed so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wrote these things down as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit. As he was inspired, he put forth the word of Christ so that the Spirit could use that to create faith and repentance in the hearts of those who would eventually read and hear this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, by trusting you may have life. And this is eternal life, as we were reading in John chapter 17. This is what the life that we receive by faith looks like, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is wrapped up in faith, a trusting acceptance of this free gift that God gives, where we come to know him as our father by coming to know Jesus as our savior. This is at the very essence of what eternal life is. And how was that going to happen? How was it going to happen then in those days? How is it going to happen now? Well, Jesus continued in John 17, verse 4, still speaking to the father, I glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's how the Son 
glorified the Father. He accomplished the Father's work. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, his next words, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, give us kind of the distilled essence of that work that Jesus accomplished, what he was sent by the Father into the world to do. He says, I have manifested your name. I have made your name known to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus says, this is how I glorified you. I finished the work that you gave me to do. This is the work that you gave me to do. I manifested your name to this group of people that you had given to me out of the world, and then your spirit worked in them, implied here, but we'll see later, and they have kept your word. So the great work of Jesus Christ was and is the revelation of the Father, the name, or the manifestation of the name of God to the people of God, so that the people of God, being saved by grace through faith, would then take that word and hold on to it. That's why we read in the Gospels that when Jesus came onto the scene after his baptism, he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the rule, the dominion of God. This is the reason why Jesus spoke the words that the Father gave him to speak and did the works that he saw the Father doing so that he could accomplish this work of manifesting the name of God to the people of God so that they could believe and be saved and that the world could be reconciled in that. The great work accomplished in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually that. It is the reconciliation of all things in earth and in heaven. But Scripture tells us very specifically that is accomplished through the redemption of his chosen people. The thing is, as noted a little bit earlier, while Jesus spoke to many people, thousands, maybe tens of thousands, during the course of his ministry in Galilee and Judea, at the time of his ascension, his actual disciples, his followers, were numbered only in the hundreds, and that's being generous. As I read a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus left this scene, committing his gospel to a little group of 11 men in order that they might carry it to the ends of the earth, at that time, the whole world, with the exception of a few in Israel, was lost in the darkness of heathenism. But on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, in the evening of that first day of the week, he entered the upper room and he appeared to ten of that little group of eleven men. And he said to them, twice no less, as the um, peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now think about the implications of what that means. We've seen the work that the Father gave Jesus to do, that he sent him into the world to accomplish, and he did it. He did everything that he had to do to fulfill the will of the Father perfectly, and then he ascended to the right hand of God. But before he ascends to the right hand of God, he comes to his followers, and he says, you know how 
God the Father sent me into the world to do this work of manifesting his name to his people. As he sent me, even so now, I am sending you. I am commissioning. Think about that word. It has mission in it, but it's co-missioning. I am co-missioning. I am bringing you into my mission to the world so that you with that commission, can go out and do the same thing that I was sent by the Father to do. We even call Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew, and this was not on the occasion of his ascension, as we sometimes assume, but his last words recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Recall that in the Gospel of John, in John 17, he said, you have given the Son authority over all flesh, all people. And the basis for this great co-mission in Matthew chapter 28 is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Matthew's account of some words that Jesus spoke to a slightly larger group of disciples saying the same thing. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go, or as you go, which would be the proper tense there, you have a task. You have work. Make disciples of the nations. Do that by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this co-mission, this joint mission of the church functioning under the authority of the ascended Christ, that is the greater work of which Jesus spoke. The work that was to be done by those who would faithfully follow in his steps. Another commentator wrote, and I read this a couple of weeks ago too, Jesus never preached outside of Palestine. The ministry of Jesus geographically was contained completely to a small area known as Galilee, and then south of that, a little bit of Samaria, and on into Judea, he never set foot out of that region, yet his followers, these very men that he was speaking to in the upper room in John chapter 20, would spread the gospel throughout the world. This author doesn't bring it up, but Jesus was physically present with his disciples for roughly three to four years. The gospel of John gives us evidence of three Passovers, so at least that. But then he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that was a good thing. We're going to see that as we go along in the Gospel of John. But in terms of the time and the physical extent of his ministry, it was actually very limited. And these men that he commissioned and the men that they would commission and ordain and send out and the people in the church would go on for 2,000 years now, proclaiming that same message throughout the world. This author notes Jesus had only a limited outreach to Gentiles, but the disciples would reach the Gentile world with the gospel. And again, in 300 years, 
from the time that Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into the world and to preach the gospel, to make disciples of the nations. Within 300 years, Christianity had closed nearly all the temples of the heathen Roman Empire. Many of them had been converted to churches at that point, and the followers of Jesus were numbered by millions. You will do greater works indeed. The church has done and will continue to do as Jesus carries on his ministry through his body. But how are we who believe in Jesus to engage ourselves in this task of doing this greater work, the work of evangelism, the work of proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, of speaking of the kingdom of God to friends and family and even strangers at times, calling them to repentance and faith, calling them to come into the kingdom and the family of God. Well, I think we find four points in what remains of John chapter 14. So four things, and it all starts with prayer. Verses 12 and 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And then verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, like the greater works aspect of this text, these verses have also often been misunderstood or misapplied. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it is not a verse that we can just lift from its context and claim as a promise of God and then go out and pray for something and believe that we can ask for anything as long as we remember to tag our prayers with that little line, in Jesus' name, amen. This is not Jesus giving the church some divine version of Amazon Prime where you can get whatever you want and have it delivered for free the very next day as long as you say, in Jesus' name. Actually, the very definition of in Jesus' name is found in, to, in, in the part of the text that I left out. I showed you the first part of verse 13 and now verse 14. But at the end of verse 13, we have a clear definition, really. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the first point here is it starts with prayer, and this is the second thing. It starts with prayer, but the goal of our praying must always be the glory of God. When we were studying the book of James, we saw this. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on yourselves or on your pleasures. If we ask God for something, even if we say in Jesus' name, amen, if ultimately the thing that we're asking for is for us, for our pleasure, for our comfort, for our glory, then we are asking amiss, James says, and we have no expectation of receiving that. But to truly ask in Jesus' name and according to the will of God is all wrapped up in those words that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask for those things 
in which the Father will be glorified in the Son, your prayer will be answered. But it will always be answered by the Father being glorified in the Son. And that's why we don't always get what we want or what we ask for. Because God knows better than we do not only what we need and what's best for us, I'm convinced that God always knows better than I do. But God also knows best what will ultimately bring him glory. I know I've quoted it before, and I can never remember for sure who said it. But some modern preacher said, God always answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. If we could see the whole picture, if we knew how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together, instead of just saying, let this piece that's really supposed to be over here fit down here, we would just commit our prayers to the Lord and say, God, you know, you know where this piece goes. And you know how it fits into the bigger picture for your glory. So, as Jesus prayed in John 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And that prayer is a perfect example. It is a perfect example of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus and according to the will of Jesus. It's shorter than the Lord's Prayer, so as such, it's easier to remember and easier to get out. When, when I was little, I remember hearing an evangelist talk about uh, how he was trying to memorize the, the sinner's prayer, um, which comes from the parable of the tax collector and the publican, where the publican beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that used to be used in altar calls where people would be encouraged to pray that as a way of receiving Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake, amen. And I remember this evangelist saying, I, I wanted to be able to say that really, really fast. In case I was standing in the middle of the street and I looked up and there was a bus bearing down on me, or if I fell off a cliff and I knew I only had seconds before I hit the bottom, I wanted to be able to pray that prayer. Um, you know, because you're never going to get out. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, you just don't have time. And besides, most of us wouldn't remember it all anyway. But this is shorter. Father, glorify your name. And it really summarizes the whole purpose behind the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Master, Rabbi, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus gave them this prayer Remember, hallowed be thy name, Father. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. In other words, Father, glorify your name. Whatever you're going to do in this circumstance, Glorify your name. This is what we're praying whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, whether we say it as an individual or if we say it as a church. And this can be prayed at any time under any circumstance. Jesus was drawing near to the cross. He was about to go through a horrific time and suffer more than any person before or since has ever suffered, and he knew it. 
In chapter 12, verse 27, he said, Now is my soul troubled. Similar to the words that he would speak in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's what most of us pray when our souls are troubled. Father, save us from this hour. And Jesus himself would pray it in the garden. I want to be clear. I'm not denying that he sat there in the garden shedding sweat like blood and saying, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But even as he spoke those words, he's not praying that into a vacuum where he doesn't know what the will of God is. He's saying, if possible, humanly speaking, let this cup pass from me. He knows it's not possible, and so he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And here he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then, verse 28, his prayer, not, Father, save me from this hour, let this cup pass from me, but rather, Father, glorify your name. And God answered his prayer. Right there and then, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And this prayer, Father, glorify your name, is the prayer from which all true evangelism springs, the greater works of which Jesus was speaking in John chapter 14. Father, glorify your name. As we go out into the world this afternoon and in the days to come this week and in the weeks ahead, and we contemplate the people that we will meet and the words that we will speak, and will we say the right thing? Will we be able to share the gospel with people in such a way that the Spirit will apply that to them, and they will turn and be saved through faith in Jesus' name? Well, Father, glorify your name. That's the prayer. Because sometimes we want people to be saved for their sake. Worse still, sometimes we want other people to be saved for our sake. But Jesus came to save his people for the glory of God. We read it earlier in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus was motivated in his work by his desire for the glory of God in the salvation of his people. And that needs to be our motivation to proclaim the gospel as well. When we go into that conversation and we're not sure what to say, and we're thinking, oh, I memorized all these verses and they're just gone. How am I going to share Christ with this person? Well, a quick father glorify your name in this conversation and in this relationship is a fantastic way to pray when you're going into that talk. That should be our motivation, the glory of God. The third means by which we do greater works is found in the conditional that Jesus expresses in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I wish I could count all the times that I have heard sermons and lessons and seminars on John 14, 
14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That never made it to the very next verse. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those two conditionals go together here in John chapter 14. It's not like, oh, here's this instruction on prayer. Ask for whatever you want, and he'll do it. And here's this other instruction on obedience. Well, you know, we just won't look too closely at that one. But it would seem fairly obvious, really. Jesus came to do the work that God commanded him to do. And that wording feels strange to us. But that's what Jesus himself said. I didn't come to do my will. I didn't come to do what I thought was right in any given moment. I came to do the will of the Father. And look down at verse 31 in this chapter where Jesus said, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, I obey what God the Father has commanded me to do so that, in order that, the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. But you see Jesus saying, the world will know. Again, there's all these things we take in in our Bible study last Sunday evening. We were looking at 1 John chapter 1, where John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And I asked the question, and it was obvious because of the text we were looking at, if I were to put on the board, God is L, and then, you know, a line afterwards, how would the vast majority of people fill that in? Well, they'd fill it in saying God is love, of course, and he is. That is also from 1 John. But before John gets to God is love, and we're going to see a little bit more about that in a minute, he says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So we can't take, this is the danger of, of, of Instagram devotions, where somebody grabs a, a little phrase from the Bible, God is love. And they put it onto a a picture of a bundle of kittens rolling around playing with a ball of yarn. And that says something about love and it says something about God. And neither of those things are what the Bible says about either subject. And we can't just take this one thing. Ask me anything in my name and I'll do it. And divorce it from the very next words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus himself kept the commandments that the Father gave to him. And then he, t- he says, that's, that's how the world will know that I love the Father and the Father loves me because I keep his commandments. And then he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we would do greater works, then we better be focused on doing the works that God commanded us to do. Like I said, this should be obvious. It's also very, very important Because in the next 10 verses, Jesus will land on this same point four times. If you look at the headings in study Bibles, paragraph headings, you'll see all kinds of headings about the Holy Spirit and about prayer of faith and different things 
but the topic that Jesus comes back to most often in this section of John 14 is obedience. We've seen verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and make myself known to him. And then he states it again in the negative, verses 22 and 23. Judas, not Iscariot, he had already gone out to find the priests and betray Jesus. But the other Judas, who was in the room, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to be seen by your disciples but not by the rest of the world. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then he restates it in the negative in the very next verse. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So if you love Jesus, you keep his commandments. If you don't love Jesus, you don't keep his commandments. And by the way, this puts a very important perspective on both the first and second greatest commandments of the law. Again, that, that text that we so often just lift out of its context where Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. It has a similar scope. And it will be fulfilled in a similar way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's true. Jesus said those things. But to lend some content to what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. This is obviously a theme here in John 14. It was a theme for the Apostle John who would write in 1 John 5 verse 3, for this is the love of God. This is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you do that? Well, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So it turns out then that obedience really is the very best way to show that you believe. Some of you may remember the song. I think it was Patch the Pirate who sang that one. But also, <laughs> obedience is the very best way. It is the only way to show that you actually do love God. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, like the song said, doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. So if we would do greater works, it starts with prayer. It starts with prayer that is very specifically calling for the Father to be glorified in the Son. And this happens. This prayer is answered. It is manifest in loving, faithful obedience by God's people to his word and his commandments. This is actually the very definition of good works found in Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We are asked there, what do we do that is good? 
Do we still have to do good works is the question right before. And the answer to that question is, yes, we do. We do works to show our gratitude to God for the salvation that we have received by grace through faith alone. And we do works so that we may be assured by the fruit of Christ working within us that we actually do belong to him. And then we're asked, okay, so what are the good works that we're supposed to do? And we're taught to answer, only that which arises out of true faith. Any work that doesn't come from faith is not ultimately good. Conforms to God's law and is done for his glory. Those three things, what are good works? They come from true faith, they conform to the law of God, and they are done for his glory. Any one of those three pieces is missing. The work is not good. And the catechism goes on to explain not that, which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. Here's the thing, though. Those three things, prayer, faith, prayer that God's name would be glorified in the Son, complete obedience to the words and the commands of God. We can't do any of that. We can't love. We can't love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves. If we think we can do that in our own strength, we are deceiving ourselves. We can't in ourselves glorify God Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we don't even know how to pray as we ought, and that is demonstrated so very often in the times that we go to God and we tell him what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Instead of going to him and saying, Father, I don't know what's going on here. Glorify your name. We're just not capable. And if that were the last point, we could just close up shop and go home, but it's not. Jesus recognized that we could not do these things on our own, that we would need a helper. And that's why all this talk of greater works of prayer, obedience, and glorifying God is set into a very precise context. In verses 16 to 18, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, said Jesus. I will come to you. He's saying, I've got to go away, and that's a good thing. It doesn't seem like it. But it really is a good thing for me to be enthroned at the right hand of God because when I am enthroned there, the Holy Spirit will come. That's me coming to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you on your own to try to glorify me in the evangelism of your friends and neighbors. I will not leave you on your own to try to figure out how to pray in the right way for the right things. Down at the end, or near the end of this section, verses 25 to 27, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have sent to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That 
benediction that Jesus gives is saying, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. I am giving you everything that you need for life and godliness through the third person of the Godhead who will now dwell with you. And not only that, he will be in you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Which is, of course, much the same as what he said at the beginning of this chapter. And also in chapter 20. Let not your hearts be troubled. Peace I leave with you. It's that layering that we're talking about. Left to ourselves, we can't do any of this. So I don't want you to go home with your little checklist of, well, these are the things that Pastor David said I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to pray, and I'm supposed to pray for the name of God to be glorified, and I'm supposed to be completely obedient to everything that God tells me to do, which would, at the very least, be problematic. I'm not telling you, go home and do those things in your own strength. I'm telling you that you can't. But Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he has. We're not waiting for some experience of the Holy Spirit. He cast this in the future tense only because he had not yet ascended and Pentecost had not yet happened. This was not the promise of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. It was the promise of the Holy Spirit sent to equip and to empower the people of God to bear fruit for the glory of God. And we don't need anything else. We have God's Word and God's Spirit. And we don't need anything else to do the greater works of which Jesus spoke. We have all that we need. And even now, again from the Heidelberg, Christ by His Spirit is renewing us to be like Himself. That's what he's doing right now. He is renewing us to be like him so that in all our living, in everything we do, we may show that we are thankful to God for all that he has done for us so that he may be praised. Because that's the whole point and the only point. The fourth and final piece then is really the first and most important piece. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly proclaim Christ to our family, to our friends, and to the world. And that's the greater work to which we are called. If the Lord is willing, next week we'll carry on in John chapter 15, where we're going to see more about the practicalities of how this works, how the Spirit of truth dwells in us and with us, as the people of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, glorify your name. There's a whole bunch of people, myself included, within the sound of my voice, and we all have different needs that are peculiar to ourselves. Different situations in which we find ourselves, different circumstances, different troubles and struggles and temptations, and trials. And Lord, not only do we not know how best to approach those things for others, 
most of the time we don't have much of a clue how to approach them ourselves. So glorify your name in your people and through your people by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to accomplish your purpose for us and for this world and to bear fruit, fruit to eternal life and fruit that will show that you are in us and we are in you. And together we are in the Father, who is all in all. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.